This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about rights, voting rights, birthright citizenship for the children of immigrants, the right of minorities to equal protection. All of those rights come not from the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. Instead, they resulted from the Civil War and Reconstruction, which expanded our rights dramatically. For that history, we turn to Eric Foner. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian who teaches at Columbia. He writes frequently for the New York Times op-ed page and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. He's written many award-winning books. The new one is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Eric Foner, welcome back. Good to talk to you, John. Well, today we live in a time, this is a quote, when principles which we all thought to have been firmly and permanently settled are being boldly assaulted and overthrown. Who said that? Was it Joe Biden? (laughs) No, it was Frederick Douglass in the 1890s who was commenting on the rollback, as they call it nowadays, of so many of the rights that African Americans had achieved uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War. This was when the right to vote was being taken away from black men, when black education in the South was being starved of money. So Douglas was pointing out a basic fact, which is that rights can be gained and rights can be taken away. And my book talks about putting powerful new rights into the Constitution, but then later, many of those rights being abrogated with the acquiescence of the entire nation and the Supreme Court. Well, the rights we're talking about here are the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, the 14th Amendment established birthright citizenship and equal protection, and the 15th put the right to vote in the Constitution. We call these the Reconstruction Amendments, they were all passed after the Civil War, to deal with the issues raised by the Civil War, which is why the first one, the 13th, abolished slavery. But Congress didn't stop there. Why not? Well, first of all, abolishing slavery, of course, is a great achievement for humanity and the the American uh, Republic, but it doesn't tell you what is going to come after slavery. What are the rights that these four million emancipated slaves are going to enjoy? What role will they play in American society? Will they be citizens? Will they be uh, equal citizens? Will they have a political voice? So in a sense, what follows the 13th Amendment is trying to work out the consequences of the 13th Amendment the consequences of the abolition of slavery in this country. The 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment, as you said, establish the citizenship of black people, establish the equality before the law of all people in the United States, and gave black men the right to vote, which very, very few had enjoyed in the period before the Civil War. All three Reconstruction Amendments empowered Congress to enforce their provisions But didn't all amendments to the Constitution do that? Uh, No, they didn't. Uh, In fact, in many parts of the Constitution, the enforcement mechanism is very uh, unclear. The Bill of Rights, which establishes, you know, most of our basic civil liberties, 
does not have an enforcement clause. It's not clear who's supposed to guarantee our freedom of speech or trial by jury, etc. So these three enforcement clauses, as you say, at the end of each of the three amendments, were actually a major departure. They, Congress wanted to make sure that they retained the power to kind of make sh- to be certain that these rights were being guaranteed, and if they if they were being violated. Congress wanted the power to step in and uh, remedy the situation, as they tried to do uh, a good number of times during Reconstruction. And the big change here with previous amendments, especially the Bill of Rights, is the Bill of Rights restrains the power of the federal government. The 13th and 14th and 15th expand the power of government. The original Bill of Rights sort of sees government is the problem, to use a recent formulation. The Reconstruction Amendments take the opposite view, that government exists to advance and and defend our rights. Yes. uh, As Charles Sumner said, uh, these amendments made the federal government the custodian of freedom. It's not just government, it's which government. The Bill of Rights restrains the national government. It begins with the words, Congress shall make no law. It restrains Congress from interfering with your freedom of speech, let us say. Uh, Before the Civil War, the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states. The states could suppress your freedom of speech. They did try to give an anti-slavery speech in South Carolina. They wouldn't allow that. But that wasn't a violation of the Bill of Rights because it wasn't the federal government doing that. Now, after the Civil War, this completely changes. It is that Congress is empowered. Congress shall have the power, not Congress shall make no law. And the states are the ones who are seen as a danger to liberty. The 14th Amendment says, you know, no state can deny you the equal protection of the law. Congress felt that the, because of slavery, because of the Civil War, because of the ideology of states' rights that had been so central to slavery, there was a need to empower the national government to protect the rights of citizens against violations in the states. Well, we're in a political season now, so let's look at the 15th Amendment establishing a right to vote. How come the right to vote was not in the original Constitution? Was that just an oversight? Well, the original states, uh, 13, wanted to be able to regulate the right to vote by themselves. And each state, even up to today, each state has different voter requirements, you know, whether it's some states you have to have a certain kind of ID to vote, in some states you have to live the, have lived there a certain amount of time or not. The provisions of the Constitution in the amendments relating to voting are all sort of negative. Fifteenth Amendment says you can't deny anyone the right to vote because of race, but there are many other grounds you can deny someone the right to vote. In Reconstruction, the radical Republicans wanted a positive amendment. They said, no, we want an amendment which uniformly gives every adult male, unfortunately not women in their view at that time, every adult male citizen should have the right to vote, and that's what the Constitution should say. Uh, If they had managed to do that, it would have solved a lot of problems that came later, including today with voter suppression laws. But the states, even northern states, wanted to keep their own voting requirements. So they didn't, the the Republicans in Congress didn't feel they could get an amendment which created a uniform voting, uh, you know, system for the whole country. They couldn't get that ratified by three quarters of the states, which is necessary. The 15th Amendment establishes the right to vote in the Constitution for the first time, and it doesn't mention women. On the other hand, it doesn't mention men either. 
It's just about race. There's nothing in the 15th Amendment that says you can't allow women to vote. And indeed, by the late 19th century, a number of states did allow women to vote. Remember, in 1860, on the eve of the Civil War, free African-Americans could vote on the same, with the same qualifications as whites in only five states, all of them in New England and with very tiny black populations. They could not vote in Ohio. They could not vote in Pennsylvania. They could not vote in Illinois, Lincoln's home state. Uh, so enfranchising black men, even though there were limits to that amendment, was an amazing transformation in the body politic of the United States. And of course, it led directly to the election of many, many hundreds of African-American men to public offices in the Reconstruction South. So it, it launched this experiment in interracial democracy, which was a very remarkable thing for, you know, 19th century America. Let's talk about the 14th Amendment. It guarantees equal protection of the laws. You said the 15th Amendment is for citizens. Is the 14th for citizens? Is Or does it give equal protection to children from Guatemala or Honduras who've been separated from their parents after crossing the border? Do they have any rights here in the land of the free? The language of the 14th Amendment, Section 1, is very interesting. On the one hand, it begins by talking about citizens. Any person born in the United States is a citizen. Now, the people you just mentioned who cross the border, they're not citizens because they were not born in the United States. They might, in the future, be able to become naturalized citizens. But if one of those people has a child in the United States, that child is a citizen. No question about it. That child born in the United States, it doesn't matter who the parents are. It doesn't matter what the legal status of the parents is. The child born in the United States is a citizen. And no state can take away the privileges and immunities of citizens, according to the 14th Amendment. It doesn't say exactly what those are. But later, it says no person can be denied equal protection of the law. No person. Person is a broader category than citizen. What's happening at the border now, however, is a little different because the 14th Amendment is mostly about states doing this. No state can deny you equal protection of the law. And all the reprehensible things going on at the border are being done by the federal government, not by the states. The ACLU is currently in court uh, litigating the question of whether people who cross the borders, whether they have a right to a hearing, a right to some kind of due process from the federal government, even though they're not American citizens. You know, with the current Supreme Court, I'm certainly not willing to make a prediction as to how much credence will be given to the rights of these people. And, you know, one of the lessons, as we said before, of the whole Reconstruction period and its aftermath is that um, a conservative Supreme Court can um, can take away rights which people thought they uh, previously enjoyed. Okay, let's talk about the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. But I thought Lincoln abolished slavery with the Emancipation Proclamation. You say the Emancipation Proclamation was the largest act of slave emancipation in world history. Everybody knows Lincoln freed the slaves. Is is everybody wrong? They're partly right and partly wrong. The Emancipation Proclamation declared free about 3.2 million slaves. That's more than any other single act like that in in history that, that I'm aware of. But there were still about three quarters of a million who were not covered by the Emancipation Proclamation. These were the slaves in the four border states, 
uh, Delaware, Kentucky, Maryland, Missouri that remained in the Union. They did not join the Confederacy, even though they were slave states. And therefore, the proclamation, which was a military measure against the Confederacy, did not apply to them. And Lincoln also exempted some parts of the South. So you have three quarters of a million who are not declared to be free on uh, January 1st, 1863. Uh, the other p point, though, is that freeing individuals, even large numbers of them, doesn't end slavery. Slavery is created by state law, and those laws have to be repealed to really abolish the institution of slavery or superseded by a constitutional amendment, which is what eventually happens. I am not in any way trying to minimize the importance of the Emancipation Proclamation, which changed the character of the Civil War very dramatically, but it did not end the institution of slavery. There's some fine print in the amendment abolishing slavery that most of us hadn't noticed until the last few years. Where is slavery permitted in the United States? Right. Well, it says uh, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime. Prisoners can be subject to involuntary labor. Now, at the time the 13th Amendment was passed, uh, very few people noticed it at all. It was almost like boilerplate language. That language was in the constitutions of most states at that time, North and South, the idea of prisoners working. You have to remember that there were very few prisoners at that time. This was not mass incarceration or anything like that. There were tiny numbers of prisoners and prisons. And, you know, some states thought, well, they should work to help pay the cost of the prison. But what happens, of course, and tragically, is that after the end of Reconstruction, the southern states use this to create a giant system of convict labor. They lease out convicts, almost all of them black, not all, but the vast majority black. They lease them out to uh, work on plantations or mines under terrible conditions. Uh, many of them die. Uh, and of course, it's on involuntary labor. They're not paid or anything like that. They have no uh, <laughs> right to complain about their working conditions. That's all allowed by the courts because of this prisoner exemption in the 13th Amendment. At the time, nobody virtually even noticed it. You read all the debates in Congress, it's barely mentioned. You read the press debates about the 13th Amendment, very, very few newspapers uh, even noticed it. And most historians have pretty much ignored, including me, I have to admit, me too. Have, have ignored it until very recently when mass incarceration, of course, is the major public issue. And then a few years ago, there was that documentary 13th, which expose the extent of prison labor at the moment. You've described how the ambiguity that was written into many of the Reconstruction Amendments opened the door to decades of centuries and more than a century of conflict over the meaning of terms like equal protection and the right to vote. Don't you wish the people who wrote the Reconstruction Amendments had done a better job? Uh, no, I don't, actually. I think it's good that they, they wrote in terms of general principle, not specific rights. Because if you start listing specific rights, you may miss some that, that are not important when you are writing, but become... For example, the most famous 14th Amendment decision of the Supreme Court recently was the gay marriage decision denying people the right to marry, states denying people the right to marry because of sexual orientation is a violation of equal protection of the law. Well, 
the people who were writing the 14th Amendment in 1866 were not thinking about gay marriage, right? That was not on the political agenda at that time. Um, so if they had begun just listing all sorts of rights, they would have certainly left that out. But what they did was put these general principles into the Constitution, which have expanded enormously in the 20th and into the 21st century. They weren't really thinking about equal rights for women, but the language of equal protection allowed people like Pauli Murray and Ruth Bader Ginsburg to use the 14th Amendment to attack laws that discriminated on the basis of gender. And that was totally plausible, given the general language of the uh, 14th Amendment. Also, people like John Bingham, who wrote the first section pretty much, they wanted to leave the door open to future expansions. They, they, they understood you can't predict what 50 years from now, 100 years from now, are gonna be, you know, uh, is going to be on people's minds. But we can at least create a situation where the principle of equality can be applied. That's why they said Congress will have the power to enforce this. Fifty years later, Congress may think, well, there's a different you know, issue here, but the principle of equality can be enforced with regard to it. So actually, I think the ambiguity is a good thing, and it, it's a source of power. If we ever get a better Supreme Court, which maybe we will one of these days, there's a lot of latent power in those three amendments that have never been used really by the courts, which could allow a more vigorous protection, particularly of racial justice in this country, than the courts have allowed in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Eric Foner, his terrific new book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Eric, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me on, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 